Amen. Let me encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's word as we come to 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, and I will be reading down to verse 15, and this indeed is the word of the Lord for this morning. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You could say a short prayer for your pastor as you sit down. (laughs) That would be fantastic. You may be seated. I have to say, if you've been around long enough, you've probably picked up on the fact that I conveniently am out of town for most of the hard texts, and I leave those to Pastor Chris. So today I'm here, though. Today I'm here. No, it's good to be here. How are you guys doing? You doing all right? It's so great to have you here. It's so great to worship the Lord, the church body um, in the building present here, but we also want to say welcome to our live streamers that are joining us to get open, uh, to get into God's Word and to open it and figure out what is there and what are we supposed to take from this. I mean, we're living in 2021, right? We've clearly evolved beyond most of this, and so too early for jokes, too early, too early. I haven't even said anything yet. Um, we're really glad that you're here on live stream, and we're glad that you're here in person. If you have your Bibles, take them and go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, that's where we're going to begin, and um, I'm just going to get into it. I, um, let's just say I'm prepared, and I'm going to be teaching quite a bit. Um, I did an hour-long message on women preachers in a series called Now Concerning, so I am going to take a different approach today, and I'll explain that as we go. Not a different approach to teaching the word, it's just that was a different topical message. This is specific to this text. And so let me just jump in here. Here's the title of the message this morning, A Word for Women. A Word for Women. And what we've been talking about the last few weeks is that beliefs bear fruit. Uh, Maybe you've heard the idea of ideas have consequences, okay? Beliefs bear fruit. Believe true things, believe good things, good fruit comes from it, correct? Believe in the true gospel, good fruit comes. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You believe in the gospel, good fruit comes. You believe in a false gospel. The problem in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is a false gospel. It infiltrated, infiltrated the church through a subset of the elders who were teaching a self-righteous, exclusive salvation that was achieved by good works instead of the good works of Jesus Christ on your behalf. In his living for you, in his dying for you, in his rising for you, that salvation would be a gift given to you by God through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. They had moved away from that and got into a works-based view of the Old Testament using the Bible to justify their behaviors and themselves. And so what happens is Paul has to deal with the fallout of bad beliefs in chapter 2. If good beliefs produce good fruit, bad beliefs produce yucky fruit, which is my word from last week and my word ongoing, yucky fruit. I have a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a five-year-old. It will will for now be yucky, okay? Yucky fruit by false teaching manifested in the church through things like division, controversy, speculation, quarreling, disunity, and in this sense today, disruption. And these fruits, what's interesting about the way bad teaching manifests itself is that bad bad teaching manifests itself a different way in men than it does in women. God dealt with uh, men last week. So if you're feeling like I'm here uh, addressing the woman, how dare he? I started with the men appropriately last week. And they have an anger problem in church. And they need to love each other. And they need to reconcile relationships. And they need to pray with each other, right? 
But there was an issue, evidently, a disruption from the men in that way, and there was evidently a disruption in the gathering of God's people amongst the women. Now, the same thing is true this week as was true last week. Yes, we are dealing with a specific circumstance that Paul was addressing to the church in Ephesus. However, just because he's dealing with a specific circumstance does not mean he's not giving us general principles that are universally applicable to the church at large. And I will be making that defense today. What Paul has to say, yes, addresses a specific circumstance, but meant to give general principles that are universally applicable to the church at large. Now, as we wade into this water, and we're going to wade, this text is sadly an interpretive battleground. Not because it's unclear. In fact, what I want to propose to you today is that the passage means what it says. The issue today is that this text is a battleground, but not because it's unclear, but because some don't like what it says. Remember 1 Timothy, we talked about this the first message. 1 Timothy, in its purpose, was written to teach the proper ordering and conduct of the church to reveal the gospel most accurately, effectively, and beautifully, not based on what the world will receive, but on how Christ wants the gospel perceived. Okay? So we freak out when it's like, oh no, that's not going to be helpful. That message isn't going to be good to my lost friends. Listen, Christ wants the gospel displayed, and it's not really based off of what they'll receive, but what Christ wants perceived. And so accusations could fly today. I'm aware of that. I'm, I'm sure this is why it seems a little bit fuller today. It could be just a total coincidence. Um, and what a time in our area for this message. You would have, I mean, anyway. Just the Lord. Uh, accusations could fly. It could be said that this proves today that Doxa doesn't like women or that Doxa doesn't value women. I love women. I love, well, I love one woman. <laughs> and then all of the rest, y'all, like a pastor should love women. You know what I'm saying? One woman and all your, the rest of y'all. All the rest of y'all. But I think what would be sadder for me is if you guys thought God doesn't value women or like women because of this. I think that would be way sadder for me if you thought that because it's so far from God's heart. Women are equal image bearers of God. You're not men, you're women. You have equal dignity, equal value, equal worth, equal purpose. It's just different in role. Women aren't the only ones to submit to God's ordained roles. I hope you know that. So should pastors. You know, I'm... I'm under authority. I don't preach what I want to preach. I preach what the text says. I got to stay in my lane too, which means I got to come to a text like this and I got to leave aside, even if I wanted to believe something coming in, I had to leave aside my opinions and my preferences and I had to enter into the fray, although it would have been easier not to, because my job is to deliver you the word of God, which is what this is. This is the word of God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And so Martin Luther said it this way, and I think it's well said for the pastor and what the responsibility is. He said this, quote, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ, end quote. This is being attacked in our day. For the integrity of the gospel, we go forward and we get into this text and we're going to do two things. We're going to go and we're going to mow. Okay? We're going and we're mowing. What do, we, what do I mean by that? We're going to go through the text and we're going to mow down all the really bad interpretations of this text. Okay? So we're going to have a lawnmower and we're just going to shred. I get to do this today because I didn't get to do this in the last message. And my time's already going. So let's go. Big idea for this morning. Gospel women embrace gladly God's good design as it is to be expressed in the church. 
Gospel women embrace God's good design as it is to be expressed in the church. Four divisions in the text this morning. I'm going to read them to you, and we'll go point by point. Women in their wardrobe, women in the worship gathering, women and God's good design, and women and good works. Okay? You can follow along point by point. We'll break it down as Paul does. He begins here, women and their wardrobe. Okay? Women in their wardrobe. By the way, ladies, for the most part, well done today. Okay? <laughs> Last week, we had men making it all disruptive in the church because they were angry with one another because their theology was leading to quarreling and they couldn't resolve their issues. And so it was coming out either in the lack of prayer or in some angry prayer time where it was really taking over and evident that reconciliation had not preceded their worship. So it was a problem in the church. But then he says this in verse nine, he says, likewise, he's pulling in, in the same idea or the same sort of thing, but for ladies... Here's what was going on in the church. Now, we get to almost the first word in here, and we begin to see the battle already taking place. And I'm going to use this phrase often, or the term often egalitarian. What is an egalitarian? We're not. And what that is, is that egalitarians believe that uh, men and women are equal, and that literally means in every single way, function and role, all of it completely equal, everything a man can do, a woman can do, and should do. It's all equal. It's all overlapping, it could all be interchangeable, it's all the same, same, same across the board. So when I use that, it's because the egalitarian position is going to try to undermine this text. So when it says likewise also that women, the first battle comes with the word women. It can also mean wives, this word wives, or this word women can mean wives. And what egalitarians will try to get it to say is if they can get this word, likewise also, no, he's not talking about women in general, he's talking about wives. Well, if he can get the text to say wives, then the passage doesn't necessarily forbid what it forbids. It merely forbids this adornment problem and this authority issue over their own husbands. But wait a minute. If all of this is just for wives, does this mean that if you've got it, single ladies, you can flaunt it? Is that what this is saying? Because evidently, it's like, I got to move it out of the context of the local church, and I got to simplify it down to the role of the husband and wife in the home. But if it does that, then does that mean that this doesn't apply to single ladies then? Now, you married ladies, you need to be modest. But single ladies, you don't have to, you don't have to do that because, because um, he's not talking about the church context, he's talking about the home context. Well, that's a problem too, because we made clear last week, when Paul uses the phrase, in every place, like he does in verse 8, he uses that predominantly to explain in every place that the church gathers for worship. And if you're like, well, well you're, just, you're getting a lot out of that, I would say, okay, well then keep reading. The topics addressed in the text, prayer in verse 8, teaching in verse 11, guess what comes right after this section? Qualifications for elders in chapter 3. Then deacons right after that. And then you get to the summary point of 1 Timothy when he says, this was written for you so that you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. This is all about how we gather and behave in the church. So... I don't take this as wives, I take this as women, and here's what it says. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty. That's how you're to adorn yourself, ladies. Notice it's not a clothing brand or a style or a type of get-up, which is G-E-T-U-P, by the way, get-up. No, you are to... Adorn yourself with modesty and self-control. That's huge that he's giving you modesty and self-control to adorn yourself with. Because then he's going to say, not with braided hair and gold, which evidently I think they were like braiding their hair with gold, which is interesting, or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works, okay? Now, if you're a lady right now, like, I'm so 
embarrassed. I have a French braid in and you're like quickly trying to undo it so no one sees you. Let me just stop you. Keep the braid. It looks fine. Or if you're like, this isn't gold. It's fake gold. I promise. You know, I mean, there's no like, look, it's staining my hand green. You know, it's like, that's not it. Don't worry. This is cheap. I don't, I mean, that's, Is what Paul trying to say here, you can't ever wear braids? You can't ever wear gold or jewelry or you're out of here. You, gone. What is that? Get out. <laughs> right? There are no longer greeters at the door. There are those people at the door. What, the, what is that? Is that what Paul's trying to say here? Listen, if that was true, then the similar text in 1 Peter 3.3 would be really weird. Because if we were to follow this, in that sense of wooden literal, which I think misses the point of Paul's text, it would mean that any female wearing clothes right now was out of bounds. I'll prove it to you. Let me read it to you. 1 Peter 3, verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external. Ready for the categories? The braiding of hair. Uh-oh, there it is again. The putting on of gold jewelry. Or the clothing you wear. All disqualified right now. Unless Paul means something like Peter means when he goes on to say, rather, ladies, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit. See, when Paul says to adorn yourself in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, what Paul's warning against is a preoccupation, lady, with your outward appearance. Two elements often tied together in the context. Expensive to be enticing. Showy to be seductive. In fact, in both the, the Greco-Roman world and the Jewish context, that this would both be understood as you were wearing ostentatious clothing to draw attention to yourself. But see, when the gospel of Jesus Christ grabs a hold of a woman's heart, there is this internal transformation that begins to take place. And when this internal transformation begins to take place, you begin to realize that the standards of beauty in the magazines is not actually God's standard. And you begin to push aside the standards of the world and gladly embrace what true beauty is as defined by God himself, who's defined beauty. And so what ends up happening is you get into this place where Paul's essentially saying what you put on should match your profession. If you're godly, you'll see it on the outside. Because the gospel simply penetrates every part of who we are, but here's how it starts. Paul's focus is on internal maturity, modesty, self-control, what's proper for women who profess godliness, all of that is a focus on, an emphasis on internal maturity, and it is to evidence itself in external modesty. That's what it is. So he's not even saying specifically, if the, if the goal was no braided hair and none of that stuff, he wouldn't use the categories he uses. Respectable apparel with modesty and self-control says that there is an aspect of this where it's going to, every culture is going to have a little bit of a different perspective on that in a sense. But the principle is still the same, internal maturity evidencing itself in external modesty, Okay. No, but here's where it gets a little bit interesting. As we transition into 11 and 12, some would say, wait a minute. Did you just open the door to say the principle of this text can be honored without literally never braiding my hair again? Well, then why can't that be true with verses 11 and 12? What a great question, you guys. Thank you for asking it. And I will answer it and say 11 and 12 is different than 9 and 10, and the Bible's clear about that. And here's the thing. If I don't make it clear in 11 and 12, verses 13 and 14, spoiler alert, are the answer for us as to why 11 and 12 is different than 9 and 10. Shall we go there? Great. Women in the worship gathering. Women in the worship gathering, number two. Here's where it starts. Let a woman 
learn. There it is. There it is. It's the only command in the text. This is it. The only imperative in the text is this. You all hear me? Am I being loud enough? There it is. Okay. Yep. Yep, up. I hear you. Yes. We're speaking. Yep. Yes. Let a woman learn. That's a command in the Bible. It sure is. But here's what happens. Here's what egalitarians take with, uh, on this uh, command. Let a woman learn, they'll say. And they'll stop right there and be like, yes, women are supposed to learn. And by the way, yes and amen to women learning. Okay? Women should be learning. You should be scholars in the word. You should be deep in your hearts. You should study it. You should share it. You should live it. Yes and amen. And yes and amen, that did upend the social stigmas of the day. It's fantastic. It's glorious. Ladies, get after it. Freedom. Okay, now, but here's what happens. Here's what they do with this. They imply a permission to teach once they're learned. What they'll say is, the problem why women can't teach is because they're not learned. Once they're learned, then they can, tell me, teach. Oh, oh, that sounds smart. Ooh, I don't know if we're going to be able to overcome that. A little stressed. Um, well, that would seem compelling, except the command doesn't end there. The command actually isn't about women learning. It's about how women learn that's commanded. Shall we go on? Let all women, excuse me, let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. So he, they don't really finish when they make their argument. Do you see, because if they made the argument um, conclusive by the end of the command, they would find that the command focuses not on women learning, but on the manner in which they learn. Again, the word quiet was used earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. We saw it earlier, okay? This word does not mean dead silent. So if you're nervous going, I already talked in church and I'm a woman, that's not, the, that's not what this is saying. It's like, I was trying to whisper. That's not what it's saying. There's a different word for silence. If you wanted to say you should never speak in church, he would have used a different word. He used the word quiet, which is the idea of a quiet demeanor and a peaceable spirit with a non-argumentative approach. Evidently, that was a problem. Evidently, there was a challenging in the heart of some of the gals in the church in Ephesus. The idea of this being a quiet demeanor and a peaceable spirit instead of argumentative is the same idea that was brought clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and it's also the same idea that's in 1 Peter when he uses a similar term in chapter 3. It's not that a woman should learn specifically here, but that a woman should learn quietly with a quiet demeanor and a peaceable spirit and with all submissiveness. There's that word. It's like a cuss word, isn't it? Like, God bless you. I'm sorry for saying it, but yet this is, this is, this is actually a good word in God's hands. It can be perverted in man's hands, but it's a good word in God's hands. We're helped by the structure here. Verses 11 and 12, here's how you need to understand them. They, they're forming an inclusio, okay? Go, go look that up later. Inclusio. It's a bracketed two verses that help us to understand this. What verse 12 is doing is following verse 11 to clarify its meaning. Verse 12 follows 11 to clarify its meaning. So in verse 12, we learn what it means for women to learn in quietness and full submission. Okay, we're like, we could just pontificate about what that is, or we could read verse 12 and find that verse 12 answers verse 11. What does it mean to learn quietly and with all submissiveness? Well, put simply, it looks like this. Respecting the command for quietness, women shouldn't teach. And respecting the command for all submissiveness, women shouldn't have authority over a man. Hang on. No one leave for the doors yet. We've got to keep going. Just setting the framework to understand how verses 11 and 12 are working with that inclusio in mind, which again, you don't even know what inclusio was because you probably colored a picture of the different kinds of literary devices in sixth grade and have never thought about it ever since, right? Okay, cool. So let's keep going. Let's look closer. 
Now, the term, I do not permit, is what he says there, and, 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 and people will be like, well, that's not a command, and so what that probably means is that's just Paul's opinion. Uh, negative, ghostwriter. Uh, what that means is, well, with that verb, uh, that verb oftentimes represents just a temporary prohibition, so this is not forever, this is just for some time, and it would go to d build their argument that, like, no, he doesn't permit it for now until they're learned, and then once they're learned, they can teach. See, that's how that works. Um, again, no. No, context is decisive in both points, so Paul's per not permitting two things. Not one thing, two things. He's not permitting two things. What is he not permitting? He's not permitting a woman to teach, which teaches in the emphatic position, or exercise authority over a man. Two things. Now, some will say, no, well, hey, listen, what he's really prohibiting is women from teaching bad stuff. Okay? And he'll, they'll tie it into verse 3 of chapter 1, that, you know, hey, there was some different doctrine being taught, right? Remember that word, hetero, didaskalon, different teaching? He'll say, they'll say, listen, the issue isn't women teaching in general, even though the verse seems pretty general. No, no, no. This is speaking to specifically women teaching bad stuff, like that bad doctrine. Okay, but listen, if that were the case, Paul could have easily used the word heterodidascalon to express that. Let me add another part. Plus, why would this be only for women then if the issue was bad teaching? Because if Paul was a good egalitarian, wouldn't he stop both genders from teaching bad stuff? Or some will say, hey, I heard what you said. You said women shouldn't teach, but I got verses. Let's go. What about Timothy being taught by Eunice and Lois? Remember? Remember the whole thing? Remember Eunice's grandma? But no, no, no. It's a grandma name, but it's mom. Remember that? We went through this, right? It's grandma name, but it's mom, Okay. Timothy was taught by Eunice and Lois, and that's how he came to faith. Or what about Priscilla and Aquila? Ever heard that argument? No, taking Apollos uh, aside and teaching him privately, Acts 18.26. Or, or um, what about that older women are precisely supposed to teach in Titus chapter 2? Or how about in Colossians 3.16 where it says that all believers are to teach one another? How about that, Pastor Scott? Take that. Well, loved ones that should tell us that a context is in mind. None of these other passages contradict Paul here because what Paul has in mind is the public and authoritative teaching of the scriptures in the corporate gathering of the church, which I would like to say is precisely what I'm doing right now. This role is prohibited to women in the church. And truly, it fits perfectly with the next element. It's almost like Paul meant exactly what he says. Because you're not supposed to permit a woman to teach or to, he, she, he says, exercise authority over a man. Now, again, they'll get into this and be like, no, no, it's how the women exercise authority that was the problem, right? They, they domineered when they had the authority, women did, and that's the problem he's addressing. Or, or no, they assert, usurped a position they shouldn't have had. They kind of forced their way in there and, and weren't appointed. And so that was the problem. They weren't appointed. Listen, all of that is, uh, is conjecture. It's, it's just not in the text. And in fact, when you use the word to teach and you use the word to exercise authority in this sense, it always comes out in a, for the exercising of authority, for example, in what would be called a non-ingressive, non-negative view of the term, meaning that it means what it says here, don't exercise authority in general. It's not speaking to a bad use of the authority. It's not speaking of the way they uh, got the authority. He's saying they're not to teach and they're not to exercise authority over the man. These two items are closely tied together as teaching is the unique responsibility of an elder. First Timothy 3, verse 2. First Timothy 5, verse 17. Guys, this has a context. So what he's speaking to specifically is the function and office of pastor slash elder because they're synonymous in the New Testament slash overseer because it's synonymous in the New Testament is forbidden for women. Women. Function and office. Preaching teaching is the function of the office of pastor elder overseer. So if you needed it to be clear, it's, it's saying no to women elders, no to welders. 
and there's no elders. But because that's a term that gets a little bit mixed up because it has another, another context, we've just adopted no galders, no gelders, okay? That's what he's saying. Now again, ladies, this is a specific context here. There's no, this isn't dealing with women's leadership in other aspects of society or the world or even the church. This is dealing with something very specific. This is not commenting on an issue of women's leadership in other aspects, whether it be business or academia or government or so on. And see, what happens right here is that after saying that and being that clear, there's this kind of sense of getting stuck on the cannot, and ladies can miss the forest for the trees. God's left so much open to women that if you were to rightly esteem all that's been entrusted to you, your plates would be quite full. You think about evangelism, open. Missions, open. Teaching women and children, open. Teaching in certain contexts in the church, I would argue there's wisdom in, depending on what that is and what context that is, not in the corporate gathering of the people over men, but open in that proper sense. Service, open. Hospitality, open. Literally, tons of other ministries, open. And so what happens is, the same temptation Eve experienced can be the same temptation that women experience, that like Eve, there's a temptation for women to get so preoccupied with the one no that you miss all the other freedom that's available to you. And so, of course, where does it go from here? When you hear something like that and you hear it and it sounds that straightforward, the first thing is, is like, what are you trying to say about women? You're trying to say they're inferior? Because I know women that are super smart and way better speaker than you. You're mediocre at best. I got ladies that would shred it up there. Um, I mean, you seem like sort of smart. I got ladies that are smart, real smart. I don't know if I seem smart or not. It, it goes that direction, though, of just like, well, I, I've seen ladies, they're so gifted. I, I think you're missing it. They're so talented. But li listen, listen, listen. We're going to find out right now, this has nothing to do with talent or gifting. Nothing. Ladies are wonderfully talented, wonderfully gifted image bearers of God. Some of you are legitimately brilliant. It has nothing to do with that. God's just made you gloriously so. Some of you are wonderfully gifted in incredible ways and it should be used in the church and all that is yes and amen, but it's irrelevant in why God creates the distinction that he does. If we argue from worldly lenses, we'll get worldly arguments. If we argue from godly lenses, we'll get godly arguments. You argue from the world and you'll feel like that mean man up there, oppressive, right? We love that word, little neo-Marxism in here, oppressive, patriarchal dominance. I, I see it in him. I hear it in Paul. Guys, you are tremendously gifted by the Lord, ladies. Here I say guys as I say that. <laughs> you, you are... You are incredibly gifted of the Lord, but it is irrelevant to God's reasoning for role distinction. Can I show you what he has in mind? It has nothing to do with what your gifts are. It has everything to do with God's assignment in his design of creation. So let's move to the next part, women and God's good design. I want you to understand God's heart. I need you to understand God's heart. This is so, so important that you get God's heart. The reason for the prohibition in God's church, that a woman in the corporate gathering for worship is not permitted to teach or to exercise authority over a man in the office of pastor, elder, overseer. Paul grounds that argument first in the order of creation and then secondly in the order of the fall. Both. First in the order of creation. Would you like to see? Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Order of creation, anyone unclear? Who was first, who was second? Well, that's Paul's reading of Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25. He's grounding his argument for this role distinction in the creation order, implying something pretty stunning. 
that this role distinction in the church doesn't actually stem from the fall or the curse. This is not, well, the best we have to deal with until Christ comes back and restores everything in a perfect consummation sort of way. By getting at creation in Genesis chapter 2, before the fall in Genesis chapter 3, then what we understand is is that this pre-fall created order, the good and perfect world that God has made before sin, is what Paul uses to justify the defense of banning the woman from preaching the the function of, the role of, as well, pastor-elder. In other words, when Paul reads Genesis chapter 2, it led him to conclude that the order in which Adam and Abe were created signaled a difference in the role between men and women. And so you have to hear me. Difference, ro- different in roles does not mean inferior. It means different. Different in roles doesn't mean inferior. Why? There's this temptation. The enemy would love us to read inferior into that. It means different in a glorious way. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Then he makes an argument, secondly, not only in accordance with the order of creation, but in the order of the fall. Notice what he says here. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, this is where the other side of the argument which would be more of the egalitarian position, will say Eve's deception points to women either being responsible for the heresy, goes back to that argument earlier of like, hey, if they're teaching bad things, that's the problem. Once they teach good things, they can teach. Or, of course, another argument. When they were not learned, you can't teach, but ladies, once you become learned, then you can teach, right? All of those arguments. They try to use the defense in verse 14 to somehow say, whatever... Eve was supposed to obey, it was not passed on well by Adam, so she didn't get it all the way, and that's not her fault, it's that bad information, or the the transmission of information was bad. Or they'll make up this part about Adam being, or Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived as being like, see, there is a deception, and that's in her teaching, and if she won't teach deceptively, it's okay. But listen, this is, this is uh, there's a term called eisegesis. It's reading something into the text, not out of the text. There's so much eisegesis. There's so much reading into the text what isn't there. Just take the argument for what it is. What is Paul doing here? Paul's focus is on what transpired in Eve's heart, namely deception. And, and for the record... There are weird interpretations, like women are, see, it proves they're more deceived than men. That's just fundamentally untrue. This has nothing to do about women being duped easier than men. I've seen men get duped really easily. It's just, it's just so sad. This, this is not complex, but we've made it that way. This is what Paul's focusing on here. What Genesis 3, if you go back and read Genesis 3, what it's so clear to tell us is that the serpent deceived Eve, not Adam. This is what Paul's focusing on. In approaching Eve, the serpent literally subverted God's order. Adam was created first, then Eve. What happens in the fall? He goes after Eve, not Adam. He lures her and Adam to switch places She became the focus of the deception. Adam rightly fails in his leadership, which is why when God addresses the issue, he goes to Adam. Because Adam didn't rightly uphold his role as a leader, and Eve was willing to take it up for him, and that result was the fall. The Genesis temptation stands as the prototype of what happens when God's good design is set aside. And what he's saying is, in the church, like in the garden, Satan tempts us to reject God's design, and he's encouraging us not to reject the pattern. Excuse me, to reject the pattern of the fall. That there's this deception, and there's this subversion of the roles of leadership. Now, all kinds of stuff comes from this. 
There's all kinds of applications. I can't get to all of the applications for how this plays out, but there are questions like, you know, well, what if elders approve a woman to preach? Have you ever heard that before? Like, maybe there's a way to, like, nuance that. Do you want my just really quick answer? I wrote one down for you. You're welcome. This is free, okay? She may be under the authority of the elders, but the elders aren't properly under the authority of the New Testament. And the minute the authorities of the elders walk outside of authority of the New Testament, the elders have no authority. And so what I would say is, put simply, because of how clear and explicit Paul is here, and not just here, by the way, in other places that we've preached before, a female is not a proper extension of male leadership, even if the elders approve, they're walking out of step with the New Testament. What if, uh, what if a church doesn't comply, Right? Like, how big a deal is this, Scott? You seem kind of intense. Now, well, here's the thing. I'm intense in general. Uh, I love the Bible. I love you guys. Uh, it's just how I roll, okay? Love you, love you so much. Just think he really loves me a lot, and then you'll be fine, okay? <laughs> if he loves me as much as he is intense about this, then we'll be good, we'll be good, we'll be good. Okay, so, so what, okay. So if a church doesn't comply, it is, uh, it's a secondary issue. What do I mean by a secondary issue? I mean, if a church has female pastors, uh, there's still, doesn't mean that you don't necessarily have Christians in the church. Does that make sense? Like a first tier issue would be uh, something where if you believed erroneously, you aren't a Christian. In other words, you can have this error persist and still be a Christian. Does that make sense? That's why it's a second tier issue. However, I would say this second-tier issue is different than the second-tier issue of why Presbyterians split from Baptists, okay? You can have an argument all day long about paedo-baptism and water baptism, but the issue here is there are some secondary issues that you can agree to disagree with and still go on fine. Good men can disagree. And then there's some secondary issues that are just plain disobedient. And this is one of those. It is a subtle rejection of the authority of Scripture, and it is worth leaving a church over in my IMHO. In my humble opinion. Okay? You see a church that goes down this road, I will tell you, mark my words, you will see many other, many other places where scripture is compromised. I guarantee it. That is a orange, if not red flag. How else are they going to interpret the scriptures? It's serious. Many more questions. Not enough time. We need to figure out this whole how you guys get saved by bearing children, okay? So... You would think the text is over, right? You're like, man, it's just like, oh. Somebody hand me an inhaler, you know? Oh. Okay. Oh. All right, fourth point, women in good works. Oh. We were almost done. Women in good works. <laughs> oh, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Huh? If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Pastor, I am so confused. First of all, your point, are you kidding me right now, Pastor? Your point is women and good works and the whole thing's about salvation? You're freaking me out, Pastor. You're tying this all together? Saved through childbearing? Help? Help? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought salvation, I thought the Christian gospel was that God came to save sinners through the work of Jesus Christ, living perfectly, dying substitutionarily for us in our place and rising from the grave so that anyone who would turn from their sin, put their faith in Jesus, would receive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, salvation from their sins. I thought it was by grace through faith in Jesus. It is. Then sup with this. What's going on here? Listen, listen, listen. It actually isn't that complicated. He's not talking about salvation from the root perspective. He's talking about salvation from the fruit perspective. It's why Romans and James can exist in the same Bible. One's dealing with the root of salvation and one is dealing with the fruit of salvation. So maybe just to be plain and clear, I would say, 
Let's be clear. You are saved by faith alone, but I think it was Steve Lawson who said that saving faith in your life is never alone. You are saved by faith alone, period and definitively. But saving faith is never alone. We are saved, Ephesians 2.8, by grace, through faith. But in 2.10, it says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand. So a true faith is evidenced in these particular ways that the Bible speaks about. Now, what's bizarre here is he says, y'all are going to be saved, ladies, through birthing children. What's going on? Well, it fits Paul's thought actually quite well. Because Paul is talking about the most notable distinction of function between men and women. Like I know these days we, we talk about birthing people. <laughs> but historically... We've understood for many, many years that those who could actually give birth to children are women. So what Paul is saying essentially is women will be saved, evidenced in part by walking in their God-ordained role. Christian women delightfully embrace their God-ordained role the gospel reframes beauty, the gospel reframes purpose, the gospel reframes all of our life such that we start to understand the heart of God rather than believing. See, what happened in the fall was the doubting of the heart of God. There was a doubting of his goodness and it led to the fall. If we catch God's heart, which we do, we see God's heart. So if you're wanting to know God's love for you, don't look further than the cross of Jesus Christ. His love has been broadly displayed for all to see. And so what's going on here is women will have, truly saved women will have evidence of their salvation coming from a life that's walking in their ordained role. Take, take Eve's name, for example, because of course the first question to come up, come on ladies, is what happens if a lady doesn't what? Have any kids, Right? like, this can't make sense. Well, well, first of all, he's applying something that's universally true of ladies and that they are life givers. In fact, do you remember the first name and what Eve's name meant? Giver of life. Life giver. That God had specifically ordained to his glory that God's purpose for women is that they bring forth life. Now, here's why it can apply to everybody. Yes, I do think there's implications here of walking this role actually physically, but this is not excluding women that do not have kids. How do I know that? Because through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see that the concept of filling the earth, that command extends to Christian discipleship that bears lasting fruit. Women, you are life givers. You are to bear fruit. Ideally, for those who are moms, that fruit is born in the lives of their kids, raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But if you are not a mom, ideally, it's bringing spiritual fruit to the lives of people that God has entrusted you to serve and care for. God has uniquely made you nurturing life givers, and that is the idea here. And what's so important to understand is not only does this apply across the board, but also it's not the only thing. It's not like um, you, you, this is the one focus for women. I'm so glad. Aren't you glad he wrote if they continue also in faith and love and holiness and self-control? Isn't it nice that that's there? Because what it's saying is simply there's a lot of things that adorn gospel people. There are certain things that adorn gospel women differently than gospel men, and there are certain things that should adorn all lives, like faith and love and holiness with self-control. Like, men, you should be full of self-control. Amen? Women, you should be full of self-control. But then there are certain aspects that men in gospel obedience and glad joy do differently, and women are called to do differently. And so I don't think Paul's disrupting his salvation theology at all. He is saying, saved women walk in good works that align with their proper role as women. 
So if you were to sum up verses 11 through 15, he would be saying a woman should not violate her role by teaching as a pastor, exercising the authority of a pastor over a man in the public gathering of the saints, but instead serving in a role and taking a role with glad joy, I might add, that properly embraces that which God has designed and fit for you as a female differently from a man who is different. God knows best. This is one of the things that becomes clear. God knows best. And he loves us. And he's for us. And the first thing we believe when we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is God is good all the time. There is nothing God is leading us into where he's leading you into despair. He's leading you into something where you sense an inferiority or you uh, sense some sort of depression because you don't get to do certain things. Listen, listen, when we go against God's design, we face consequences. He gives us commands to keep us for the best, not from the best. When we walk in what God does and we begin to see, wait a minute, it's not based on how I define my world, how the world defines the world. No, no, no. I get new lenses in the gospel. I get to see life how God defines it. And I get to find the glories therein because no one defines me but the Lord ultimately. And I walk in the joy that he has. There's something for women that is distinctly glorious. And he wants you to free yourselves up to walk in that with a restful heart because he loves you and he loves this church and he loves his good design all for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Father, it is a tremendous blessing to sit under your word. We would know nothing if you hadn't revealed yourself to us. We would have no concept of the world we live in. We would have no concept of how we are to please you if you weren't clear with us, Lord. And you've been clear in many ways. You've been clear generally in the revelation that you've made your divine power. You've made clear in our conscience, Lord, that there are certain things that violate that conscience, however mis messed up our consciences are, but you've given us your word. You have revealed yourself by your word to lead us into truth for our own joy and for your glory. And Father, I pray that you would take the truths in this text that are actually quite clear and help apply them with great joy and thanksgiving to the people here and all who are listening, that you might get the glory as we go walking in step with what you have designed as best whether male or female. May we do that with great delight, all to your glory, in Jesus' name.